Well, I'd like to welcome today to the podcast David Steinwoodell, the CEO of Affordable Central Texas nonprofit here in Austin. David, rather than butcher your background and, and your history of knowledge of being in this space and this business, please tell us a little bit about how you came through your career and then ended up being tasked with such a very unique opportunity here in Austin. Sure. Well, uh, let me start, you know, one for thank you for having me on, on board uh, to We'll start with the end. So um, Affordable Central Texas uh, is a nonprofit who was formed about six years ago to be the sponsor and investment manager of the Austin Housing Conservancy Fund, uh, which is a private equity open-end fund that has been uh, designed to um, invest and preserve uh, workforce or moderate income housing. Yeah, I've spent my career in real estate um, over 35 years in a variety of, of sides of the business. Uh, started out in pension advisory and, and life company real estate, been with REITs, uh, invested on behalf of you know, high net worth uh, individuals, and um, also invested from my own account. And about six, seven years ago, the mayor of Austin at the time, Steve Adler, convened uh, a task force of real estate folks like myself and people from affordable housing industry. And we were literally put in his conference room down in City Hall for a period of six or seven months with the charge of trying to come up with a private market solution to um, what's become a, a, an ever-growing problem here in, mm -hmm. in Austin and, and really across the state of Texas, which is when people move from beyond subsidized housing, um, and technically that's 60% of median family income and above, they lose the support of, of any kind of uh, vouchers or any kind of subsidized housing, yet they remain a very housing cost burdened. And, and housing costs, in our respect, is for uh, rent and utilities and the cost of, of, of being a renter. And, and by definition, that's when somebody spends more than 30% of their, of their gross income on housing costs, again, rent and utilities uh, primarily, then uh, they're considered housing burdened, uh, housing cost burdened. And Austin, you know, renters, I mean, over 50% of renters now are, are considered housing cost burdened. Wow. I mean, a lot of that's due to the fact that you know Austin's enjoyed this fantastic growth, and you know, we've all benefited from that. You know, the growth, though, has has created uh, challenges for teachers and you know, first responders, but even like bank tellers and and baristas are all kind of now challenged to find a place to live anywhere close into Austin that isn't you know incredibly expensive. Yeah, I think I was fortunate enough to attend. And a recent event of yours here mm -hmm. in Austin, it's really opened my eyes to what you're doing uh, and also through a longtime friend and mentor of mine that serves on the board with you. And I think one of the, I won't name names of who was there, but one of the CEOs, well-known CEOs in Austin spoke up to the room during the, the ask portion and said, hey guys, we're the ones that created this problem, right? Exactly. exactly. Yes and no, but you know, they're, they're the ones that grew the companies and attracted the talent that then drove up the housing prices. Yeah. So I think there's a really neat, I thought it was very, very neat to see all of these CEOs and private equity execs and venture capital um, back companies and the venture capitals themselves show up at this event to say, we know this is a problem sure. and we're all chipping oh, in to, yeah. to solve, yeah. solve this problem. Yeah, it's been, it's been a fascinating evolution for us because we started in 2018 uh, buying our first properties and our initial investors were all individual investors. Um, 
A lot came out of the real estate industry and because they knew that they had benefited. Uh, it's been a little bit slower uptake. Um, folks that have been on the tech side of the business, a lot of folks that were in that room at that, at that meeting were, were, were tech-focused and VC, so it was fantastic to have them there and now begin to participate in the fund. You know, because really the, you know, the rising tide of, of both VC, tech, and, and real estate have all benefited very well from the, uh, you know, what's happened here in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, now everybody's kind of beginning to feel the pain of, of some of the affordability. Um, like when your kid's favorite teacher isn't at the school anymore because they've decided that they don't want to walk, drive an hour each way yeah. to, to become, you know, to teach at a school, you know, it really begins to hit home for folks. And, and that's been kind of the you know the thesis behind uh, our, our our fund is that you can invest in a vehicle that is you know designed you know it's an institutional grade investment vehicle uh, designed to produce uh, you know current returns and some appreciation, but it's also then providing a good to uh, Austin as a whole and to kind of those folks, um, you know, the essential workers of Austin, that without them, this place wouldn't be the cool place that we all call home. Yeah. And one thing I think is extremely fascinating and attractive to a lot of the entrepreneurs, uh, business owners, executives in Austin, is that it's it's a private market solution. Yep. Right? It, it's a group of people saying, we know there's a problem. Let's not wait for government or let's not wait for an NGO to try to solve this problem. Let's go do this ourselves. Right. And right. let's put together a solution that is that can be both beneficial to the investors and ESG aspect of it. I don't like to use that term no. technically, but my preferred term is you know values based investing. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a wonderful opportunity to take a spear and not a net. So most right. ESG is a net. Someone defines a broad set of ESG, and you invest in it, and you're investing in all kinds of things you may or may not believe in or have a conviction behind. Right. Here, it's a, this is very much spear fishing. You say, I have a high conviction that Austin needs to have more affordable housing. I can put my capital here, know that it's going to work to actually solve the problem and not going to some overlying management fee and company and that's right. so and so and that's forth right. down the yeah. line. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, and that's what got me in, in, involved in this. You know, my career was not in affordable housing. You know, my career was in commercial side, uh, investing on either for myself or on, on behalf of others. So, you know, frankly, that's been a benefit to not have an affordable housing background, mainly because I didn't know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I, mean, I thought the commercial world was hard until you get into the affordable world and there's an entirely different language. Yes. There's an entirely different set of rules and, and, and things that you try and uh, be involved with. And there's kind of an important distinction, too. You know, when you say affordable it conjures up different things for different people. Um, a lot of people talk about capital A affordable, which is the subsidized housing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's literally the 60% of median family income and below is defined as low and very low income. And that has a, 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 a set of rules and regulations, you know, that we're not involved with. You know, we're more the small A affordable or even called attainable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, just really trying to make something that would allow for somebody who, you know, lives in Austin can and, you know works in Austin, but also can live in Austin close to their job, yeah. close to good schools, all those things that are important to you know, anybody who wants to have stable housing. Yeah, well, and you talk about that attainable housing. That's a great term for it yeah. because it's um, when you get out of the government subsidy world. There's a couple questions that I had for my level of curiosity: is do you still receive the tax benefits being a nonprofit, and how are those passed? 
through to rent roles, investors, so on and so forth. And then the second piece is what happens if someone is just kind of creeping up towards that upper income level and it, they really, if you kick them out, their rent goes from 1100 to 2200 a month and then right. now they're back right. in the same predicament again. So, so we have, you know, I'll answer the second question first. The win for us is that somebody goes from having to be in a place where they have to, you know, where there's affordable rents to having the choice of where they get to live. Mm-hmm. Actually, when we started the fund, we thought that the, uh, you know, the, the holy grail was that people would move into home ownership. And that was a little bit of a, you know, an eye-opener when we discovered that actually not everybody wants to own, own a house, but what everybody wants is the choice of where they live. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, so hopefully they do well. Uh, they, they you know, either get a raise or in, in the current job, they get a new job. If, if they move beyond the affordable level, they're not kicked out. But we do move them up to more of a market rent for that, okay. that facility. But if they choose to stay, that's a win. If they choose to go to the bright, shiny new apartment community down the road, that's a win. If they choose to go buy a house, that's a win as well. Yeah. You know, so it's really just moving them from having to be in a place to having that choice of being where they can live. So tell me about how does the dynamics of an investment work when there is a nonprofit and a charitable aspect yeah. involved? So kind of getting back to your previous question about yeah. the, the taxes. So interestingly, the fund itself is a for-profit fund. Mm-hmm. It's run by a nonprofit. And and the reason we did that is kind of multifold. Uh, one there is tremendous transparency in a nonprofit. Most real estate firms that you know people listening to this would invest with, they don't get to see how the sponsors of their investments earn their money. Um, you can find what I earn by pulling up our Form 990, mm-hmm. and you know, we're very transparent. And part of that is, is that we use the nonprofit to take a, a profit share from uh, the fund itself, but that profit share doesn't go to the employees. It actually goes and is reinvested back into the fund. Mm-hmm. So Affordable Central Texas is now one of the largest investors in our own fund which adds to you know incredible amount of stability and you know our desire with an open end fund is to run this literally in perpetuity. You know, when we look at, at buying properties, we're looking at 10, 20, you know, decades of uh, of time, you know, in, in terms of our ownership. You know, a lot of the things that folks may have invested in are closed end investments where within seven or 10 years, there's an end to that investment. Mm -hmm. The uh, sponsor is obligated to return capital. And, but by having an open-end fund, we can, you know, own for a long period of time. We can maintain affordability for a long period of time and maintain stability for for residents. We do get a tax benefit, but it's in terms of a property tax abatement by uh, partnering with housing agencies. Mm -hmm. Here in Austin, Housing Authority, City of Austin, Austin Housing Finance Corporation, Travis County Corporation's Housing Authority of Travis County, there's this myriad of, of potential partners that we can work with that you know, at the individual property level, we um, you know, have a partnership with them. By having them involved, we don't have to pay, uh, pay real estate taxes. Uh, but then we're required, and you know, the requirement goes with uh, you know, a ground lease that's put in place to maintain that affordability for 55, 75 years. Mm-hmm. And that affordability has to be at least half of that property must be affordable beneath 80% of median family income. Okay. So it's kind of baked into the ground as well as baked into the fund structure that substantial affordability is maintained in, on a long period, you know, long period of time. And hopefully I heard this right just from listening to people talk about the project is that 
the 80% wasn't a granted number from the get-go that a lot of the work of the group and yourself and the board was to go petition these government organizations to allow affordability to be more of the attainable number than the big A affordable number. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of tools that are out there that we designed the fund around. One was that 80% number that's tied to state regulations for the housing agencies and to get the tax abatement. Uh, secondly, a, our largest group of investors now in terms of total dollars are uh, banks. Hmm. And banks have a requirement to uh, for a community CRA. reinvestment act. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so CRA requirements, uh, that they have to be at least 51% at 80% of median family income or below. Our fund, by way of operation, we, we're generally in the 65% to 70% of our residents have rents that are affordable at 80% of median family income or below. And in fact, we've got, we've got some you know, residents that are at 30% as well, all the way up to 80%, depending on the partnerships that we've set up with the various housing agencies. Just out of curiosity, working with government agencies, everyone knows the old adage, but how long did that take to vet all of that stuff out through the governments and and Um, agencies and different organizations to get it working? So we launched in 2018, so we did our first deals then. Some of this has been an evolution, and some of it's been a learning process along the way. We have, you know, Tremendous aspirations for our, our portfolio. We're, we're you know with we've got a closing coming up in um, in May. That's going to take us to almost 2,000 units. Take the fund to almost 400 million in, in gross value, which has been phenomenal. But at this point, we had expected to be at 5,000 units. We were like a thousand units a year. Then a pandemic hit. Yep. <laughs> and frankly, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, we had that week long ice storm. Yeah. That frankly, was worse for us from a, um, an operational standpoint. You know, the pandemic was kind of a fascinating thing. We always got asked before the pandemic, you know, what happens if there's an exogenous event that occurred that, that, that would cause like a recession or cause some demand changes? And we would say, well, in that case, we thought we think this will happen because we've never run the fund through that kind of a scenario. Well, the pandemic provided us a chance to run through that scenario. Yep. And everything we thought would happen actually did. You know, So our rent collections were higher than market. Our occupancy was higher than market. Hmm. Our, our tenant retention was higher than market all throughout the pandemic. That's because um, everyone had to stay home. People <laughs> wanted to stay home. People wanted to retain their affordable housing. Everything that we thought was going to be true about how sticky the residents would be, how, you know, help us manage our, our operating expenses all played out as true uh, during the pandemic. The reason the ice storm was was so much, you know, uh, in that winter uh, storm was so much worse was that we had physical damage physical to a damage lot to of the properties. The properties. Yeah. And I mean, we had a couple of units that had, you know, basically trees of frozen ice from a upstairs going down to a downstairs unit that had to be all repaired and fixed. Wow. And that was much more challenging, you know, taking care of the residents, getting the units back up to speed, those kinds of things. Wow. But, you know, we're still, uh, we still want to hit 10,000 units in 10 years. Uh, means we had to hit the accelerator a little bit more for yeah. the next uh, you know, five or six, but you know, we're on a track to be able to get there. Is there actually an opportunity set of existing buildings in Austin that are targetable to reach that number, or yeah. is it going to be wider? So there's going to be, um, well, when you say Austin, we think Austin is really Travis County and the surrounding counties. Okay. Yeah, that, um, that was my question, like yeah. Austin proper versus yeah. Austin MSA. And, and 
you know, because what's, what's happened is as Austin's gotten expensive, those that can't afford Austin have now moved to the surrounding counties. And guess what's happened? Those surrounding counties are not affordable either anymore. Yeah. We launched to preserve existing housing. That was, our, that was our initial thrust. Kind of the more nuanced answer is that there's, there, we, we still have the ability to buy existing housing, but at some point we think that a lot of the properties that we're buying actually were going to be candidates to be redeveloped. But as opposed to having a for-profit developer do that and take everything to market, we can be involved um, mm. and take a property that is very low density, built in the 80s, surface parked, and we can go in and put a much more dense product in and you know, triple the number of units that are on the same site. But in the meantime, increase the affordability, number of affordable units by three times yeah. as well or more. And in doing so, expand the portfolio, but also then you know, provide you know, ways to, to harvest uh, some profits off the properties as well through refinance and continued ownership. Yeah. Now, how has the rate environment affected the portfolio and composition of assets? So the existing basically. portfolio, we're absolutely fine. We, everything we bought, we put on 10 or 12-year mm. Fannie or Freddie agency yeah. debt. I wish we had those days again. Yeah. <laughs> it's very addicting to have 3% borrowing yeah. rates. Yeah, there's, there's no better liquor than, than cheap money. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, yeah. And so the existing portfolio is fine. We're in a period now, all the you know, commercial folks call it a period of price discovery, mm-hmm. which is basically where sellers discover that they can't sell the property for what it used to be worth, and buyers are helping them discover what the real value is. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that's driven by the cost of borrowing. It's just that at current operating levels, current debt, you just can't pay the prices that were being paid in the past. So what we're finding, we're not competing very much in the open market. Uh, we're hmm. doing a fair amount of uh, work now with existing owners who we can recapitalize their existing properties and provide them some relief by bringing in fresh capital. That then comes with a requirement of putting the uh, attainable units in, and then we can refinance them out in, in, in the short run, hopefully when the market's become a little bit more favorable. I, mean, I don't think we're heading back to a 3% I don't market. Either. Yeah. But if we end up in the mid-fours, that's a pretty workable, healthy, workable It's a number. healthy real estate yeah. market in the mid-fours yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, speaking of numbers, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about fund performance and what an expectation of return on a vehicle like this should be, knowing that it is a, a hybrid charitable slash capitalistic yeah, vehicle. So, I mean, we're, we operate equivalent to a, a kind of a core plus uh, institutional product where total return for us is going to be you know, in the upper single digits, lower uh, double digits, you know, to date, which for us is now through uh, the third quarter last year, uh, we're at north of uh, 9% for a total return. We're set to be able to declare something that's going to be an improvement on that, but we have to get our board approval and a final audit before we let that out. So we've been very pleased with how the, you know, how we've performed. It's frankly been a little bit better than we expected, mm. and it's been really driven by appreciation that we value the portfolio quarterly and then have that verified by um, you know, outside appraisers uh, once a year. And that's what we're going to approve is the outside appraisal values. And um, you know, we also then do a quarterly distribution to our investors 
and on a percentage basis, that's run between three and four and a half percent, depending on when they came in. Uh, we set a new uh, net asset value, a per unit value every quarter, that, and then we bring in new capital at that new NAV, um, so that protects the existing investors from being mm-hmm. diluted. We've been very fortunate in terms of steady growth in terms of the um, portfolio, and, and we've kind of discovered something that we didn't envision when we started this, is that you know, real estate can be pretty spiky. It can mm-hmm. spike up and spike down. By having you know almost two-thirds of the residents on a uh, more controlled you know, rental rate growth that's tied to, to wage growth, that smooths those spikes up. And so we're not as subject to... to you know, massive increases, but we're also protected on massive decreases because the majority of our rents now are below market. Mm-hmm. So market would have to drop fairly dramatically for them for our rents to even be you know equivalent to what happens in the marketplace. Yeah, and you can't ever say it's never happened, but it, it would take a huge set of circumstances for something like that to occur. Yeah. Well, and you know, getting back to an investor, I'm just curious to hear the mindset of the typical investor in the fund. I mean, we all know you can't eat IRR, but you can't eat the cash on cash. And what are the investors doing with that? Seeing, are they viewing you as a charity in and of themselves or are they um, giving to the fund directly? How are people supporting this? Are they reinvesting? Are they donating? What are they doing? It's fascinating. We've got different pockets of folks. Some people have actually just given contributions to the nonprofit to invest in in the fund. They've treated it like a pure charity. That's just the way they want to be involved. Others like the fact that we're throwing a pretty decent current return and have appreciation. So they're reallocating bond dollars into uh, something like this. I've had a number of conversations with people in the tech world when I talked about reallocating from bond dollars, and they said, I don't invest in bonds. They're like, what are bond dollars? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we kind of talk with them about you know the long-term returns and, and you know how that stabilizes out our portfolio. And a lot of them, we have some foundation money that's been invested, mm. you know, either through people who have donor-advised funds or through family foundations. And those family foundations are required to distribute out 5% a 5%. year. Mm-hmm. So we're approaching that in terms of a current return and actually having some appreciation. So we've seen a fair amount of family foundation and private foundation money coming in because they're attracted to the return characteristics of what we do. And then on top of that, it feels charitable. Definitely in the last three or four years, everybody has made an investment because they feel it's a good investment that has you know, the icing on top of the cake of providing something good for Austin. I think some of our initial investors thought they would never see a dime back. And um, they told me so. And I <laughs> take a lot of uh, pride. And, and actually, every quarter when I get to sign a check to send them their, their quarterly distributions, I can, I can write on it, I told you I so. I told you so. Yeah, this, this is the piece that proves this, you wrong. <laughs> this is right. That's right. So kind of the future for us, I think, are going to be continue to be individual investors. Uh, they're coming out of family offices or, or you know, accredited investors that, that are looking to um, you know, support what we're trying to do. We think we will continue to see a strong push from banks. Mm-hmm. Um, we know how to speak their language now and yeah. meet their needs on the CRA side. And we now have gotten to a point where we've got enough of a track record where uh, we're hoping to be able to see some institutional money start coming in. Interesting. I mean, the way our fund is set up, it supports all the way through institutional money. You know, and why wouldn't it? I mean, that that's the coup de grace. What you're going for? Those right. are the really big checks right. that come in. Our next step, probably as an organization, is 
to go from just being a solution here in Austin and moving to Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. Uh, taking the concept, modifying how we how we um, how we operate to meet the, the individual needs of those cities. But as as we expand that geographic base, that actually provides comfort to the larger investors who are looking for some geographic distribution. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, when we started seven years ago, place based investing was really cool. Yeah, uh, it's not cool anymore. Not cool anymore. <laughs> yeah. So now having some geographic diversification, you know, underlying industries that that move at different paces, um, I think is is going to be beneficial. Not only to the institutional investors, but to everybody who's involved. Yeah. Well, you uh, you just hit my my let's wrap it up question, which is what's next for the group? You answered that in your terms of your geographic diversification. Um, I call it exporting good good news. Yep. Exporting good things to other places is always a good thing to do, especially in this world. With that said, what are, what are one or two things that most people don't know about the efforts you're doing here that they should know about it? That's an awesome question. Well, I guess a couple of things. One, in addition, you know, we've talked a lot about this as an investment. Um, we do use the nonprofit to provide uh, services and programs to the residents, mm. and we actually have something called the Act Together program. We started it during the uh, pandemic as a an ability to help out people that it really fell on hard times financially. But it's really now morphed into our ability to provide programs to the residents. We ask the residents, you know, uh, through a survey each year, what are the various things that they look for, you know, that, that would help them, you know, in their daily lives. I have been proven wrong every single year trying to guess what the number one result would be. Mm. You know, pre-pandemic, I thought it would have been, you know, buying a house. Uh, it came out that the people wanted uh, access to fresh food, uh, health and wellness programs. Mm. You know, so we partnered with a whole bunch of folks to do that. We're still doing that. We just did a, um, a farmer's market at one of our properties oh, where cool. every bit of food, you know, green food that we had was taken away by, by the residents. Um, but now we're doing, you know, now what's coming out on top are financial literacy and actually mm-hmm. people looking and wanting support on, um, on buying houses. You know, how do you clean up your credit score? How do you get yourself ready to be a borrower? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a surprise, you know, you know, while stable housing is kind of the underlying, it's also then giving people the capacity to you know, improve their lives too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. The work that you are doing, this effort that you're leading in our city, a city I grew up in, yep. I've called home my entire life, is amazing to see, especially, the, again, this private sector coming in saying, we have an issue, we need to solve this problem so Austin can can be affordable and can still be a great place to live as it still is today. Definitely. So thanks for coming in, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. 
There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.